This is Matt Osborne. This is Pat King. My name is Martin Armstrong. This is Alex Craner. This is Franco Terrazano, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Wednesday. Hope everybody's uh, week is cruising along. Um, if you uh, haven't tuned in to uh, uh, Patreon, me and Two's had a little uh, splash. He's watching me do this right now. That's why I bring it up. Uh, more like listening to me uh, jammer on. But if you haven't tuned into our Patreon, uh, our little bonus clips, uh, you could see the debacle uh, of this week. Anyways, go to Patreon. It's in the show notes. Today's <laughs> episode is brought to you by uh, Guardian Plumbing and Heating. That's Blaine and Joy Stefan. They have a BOGO sale going on. Buy an air conditioner and get a furnace for free. Yeah, you heard that correct. If you're thinking about cooling off this summer, this is how it reads. Now's the time to take advantage of our fantastic BOGO offer. From now until August 31st, get a free furnace by purchasing a high-efficiency AC unit. For more details, call us to schedule a free appointment with one of our comfort consultants. Limited time offer. Some restrictions may apply. Call 306-912-5942. I'm just saying. Buy an air conditioner and get a furnace for free. It has me wondering, maybe I should, do I need a new furnace? You know, like maybe I give them a call. Anyways, you get the point. Guardianplumbing.ca, where you schedule your next appointment at any time. And uh, supposedly can get a furnace for free if you buy an air conditioner. Hey, I'm just saying, why not go give them a call and find out. The Deer and Steer Butchery, uh, that's a butcher shop here in the Lloydminster area. They're looking for butchers. If you uh, are interested in a career in that or you got a background in it, uh, of course, they uh, are looking for you. So specifically you, why not give them a call and uh, talk to uh, Brian and, and the team, 780-870-8700. Uh, if you've got an animal that needs butchered or hunting season as it nears closer, you can also uh, have your animal go through there and uh, and uh, all the appropriate stuff. You can also get your hands in the mix and uh, help with the butcher process. Just saying, just saying. Uh, Three Trees Tap and Kitchen, uh, they got... Uh, Treasure hunt, uh, treasure hunt. I don't know what I'm reading right now, folks. It's like my brain's not functioning. I'm worried about twos listening to all this. It's weird. He listens to me all the time. Actually, right now he can't even talk on this thing, so I don't know why I'm worried. Anyways, twos would say he really enjoys the food at Three Trees. I would say uh, the 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 live music when it comes. If you follow him on social media, I think that's a cool touch. And then of course they got a great uh, offer. Uh, uh, a bunch of different beers on tap, a lot of which are local, and I think that's a, that's a nice touch as well. Always call the book a reservation, 780-874-7625. Uh, we got uh, Renegade Acres. That's uh, Caleb Taves has opened up um, a spot here for uh, for different local uh, people to uh, uh get their message out. And I, I think that's really cool of Caleb Taves and of course, Renegade Acres, his company to uh, grab a spot here on Wednesdays. So uh, first off, you got uh, Marwayne, they got a fundraiser, they need a nice plant, boards, new pipes under the arena floor. And they're having a concert on September 8th, 2023 with Gord Bamford and Dwayne Steele. You got uh, Paradise Hill this August 12th. They got, uh, oh my goodness, Folks, I'm forgetting the I'm forgetting the name right now. That's 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 terrible of me. Um, well, I'm just gonna look it up now. You know, like welcome to the ad reads. I'm expecting twos to like Corb Lund. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It's like Sean. Just read the. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Corb Lund. You know, ever since I stopped. Uh, Twos is laughing in the background somewhere. Ever since I stopped, like, editing the front portion, when I have really bad screw-ups like this, I'm like, fuck me. Anyways, here's the human experience to it, folks. Uh, Corb Lund is in Paradise Hill this Saturday at the Bash, Paradise Hill Bash. Anyway, so that's the next one. And then finally, uh, Jim Ness has got a preppers course coming up in Sedalia Hall, August 18th, 19th, North of Oyen, South of Concert, basic RV parking in Sedalia, community strategies for a changing world, food supplies and alternative energy systems. Uh, John Graff is, is the speaker, and uh, you can uh, well you can head to Sedalia uh, of all places uh, to do that. Anyways, um, look on your map to find that one. Now let's get on to the tale of the tape brought to you by uh, Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals, delivering to your farm commercial oil field locations. For more information, visit them at hancockpetroleum.ca. 
He's an American author, social critic, public speaker, and blogger. He's best known for his books, The Geography of Nowhere, A History of American Suburbia and Urban Development, and The Long Emergency. I'm talking about James Howard Kunstler. So buckle up. Here we go. This is James Howard Kunstler, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I got Jim Kunstler on. So, sir, thanks for uh, giving me some time. A pleasure. Um, now, before we get rolling, well, I mean, uh, I guess the way I always started off is I'm, I'm kind of curious about uh, who Jim is. You know, there's going to be a lot of listeners. The reason I stumble into you is I had an architect from uh, um, British Columbia come on. And he goes, you know, if you want to learn some more about this long emergency, you should have uh, this guy named James Howard on. I'm like... Uh, all right, I'll go look into it. So anyways, that leads me to you. But uh, in saying that, if he hadn't said it, I wouldn't have known nothing about you. So I was hoping for the audience and myself, you could uh, give us a little, you know, a little bit of who Jim is. Well, um, I'm the author of about 20 odd books, uh, 13 novels, and six nonfiction books about um, urban design, uh, the, the fiasco of suburbia, um, the long emergency book was a book about the uh, global economy and uh, the the uh, future prospects for Western Civ, or actually for advanced techno industrial civilization. And um, uh, I was a journalist in the 1970s when I was a young man. I worked for Rolling Stone magazine for a spell, uh, and then I dropped out to to write books because. That was the programming for aspiring uh, people with literary aspirations in my time. And that's, uh, that's what happened to me. You dropped out of Rolling oh, Stone. Oh, also, uh, I, I write a popular political blog that comes out twice a week called Clusterfuck Nation. Yes, I've been enjoying that for the last. I've been at the lake with the family, so I've I've been uh, doing a little bit of reading of yours, and I think it's Thank a you. great blog name. Great blog name. I don't think anyone. Well, would be it describes the situation pretty <laughs> clearly. Um, when you talk about uh, Rolling Stones, was it once upon a time was that the the like? I mean. Was that easy to drop out of where you're like, ah, who cares? I want to write books. The, the I was a um, <clears throat> reporter and then a columnist on a daily newspaper, on a, on a few uh, newspapers. And, um, you know, I, I was fairly content doing what I was doing, although I didn't like living in the last place I was at, which was the capital of New York State, Albany, New York. Not a, a, a wonderful city. But, um, you know, I got an offer at the time, Rolling Stone, <clears throat> which started in 1967. By 1974, they were trying to unload some of the hippie deadwood that was around the office and hire young people with newspaper experience. And I was among that group of people who got hired. It turned out I didn't like the job. Uh, it was not a pleasant office to be in. Um, and we had you know, a staff that was basically uh, engineered to run a monthly magazine, but it came out twice a month. So we were doing twice as much work as uh, other magazine staffs. And um, it was a dreary kind of a place. Uh, you know, it wasn't a dope festival or anything. Um, many of the people there at the time were kind of alcoholic. And uh, it had a kind of a depressed uh, uh, kind of ambiance. So uh, after about a year of that, I decided to get out and uh, I got up at four o'clock in the morning and started writing a horror novel because I figured I could write I figured I could write a better one than Peter Benchley's Jaws. And, um, uh, you know, when I finished it, I left San Francisco and returned to the East Coast and settled in upstate New York, where I've been ever since. Well, lead me to the long emergency. Um this idea and 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 certainly give the 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 backstory of it but how do you get to the idea of the long emergency well it's not that complicated the the idea itself is the idea is the the probability that we're looking at a collapse of many of the uh, hyper complex systems and systems of systems that we depend on 
to keep uh, this civilization going. You know, everything from from transport transport to our electric grid to um, uh, all the way the way that we do business on the large scale. And the upshot of it is that we're probably going to have to downscale all of our human activities and uh, live much more locally. And um, it's, it might sound to people like a similar thing to the WEF's Great Reset, but it's really not because uh, the main difference being that the, you know, the World Economic Forum people believe in this highly concentrated, centralized world government power. And that's exactly the opposite of the direction that we're going in. You know, the trend is to is to disaggregate and get smaller and get less complex and get more regional and more local. And so that kind of uh, fantasy about global control is really not going to work out. We are nonetheless going to go through a kind of a convulsion of civilization. Now, how, how did I get to that? Well, I had written a couple of books about the, the fiasco of suburban development and, and all of all that it implied for for our economy and, and for our ecology, for, for the spiritual lives of people living in North America. <clears throat> and towards the end of that book, I had to consider the problem of our dependence on large amounts of petroleum to continue living the way we do. So uh around that time a bunch of senior senior geologists retired from the oil industry and started publishing their dark and secret thoughts about where the industry was headed and usually they would have published them solely in uh obscure industry journals like the Colorado School of Mines bulletin or you know petroleum today or some other thing that nobody reads but at the same time that that happened in the mid 90s, uh, the Internet was starting to really uh, get traction. So all of those ideas started leaking onto the Internet and then they were rather disturbing ideas. Basically, they said, we're going to start getting into big trouble with oil in the early 21st century. And indeed, we did. They were correct. Um, then we went through, you know, we went that led to the convulsion of. 2008 and 9, the great financial crash or whatever you want to call it. Um, it was a great disordering of the um, the money system, the investment system and the banking system. And it threatened to bring the whole system down. But uh, we kind of papered it over with more uh, money printed out of nowhere to be used as loans to paper over the problems that we had and the deficiencies in the system. And we continued on. And one of the offshoots of that was that the shale oil industry developed. The shale oil industry was a manifestation of more than a decade of extremely cheap money, low interest, near zero interest loans. And the shale industry uh, thrived on that and they took advantage of it and they went ahead and they did a lot of projects and they, it, it was a great financial stunt. And it was a great actual demonstration of, you know, um, engineering prowess. But uh, it was based on some false premises, you know, the idea that there was an endless supply of this shale oil. And uh, the other false premise was that you could make money in the shale oil business, which turned out not to be true. So there was this tremendous investment during the, during the 2000, from 2009 on in shale oil. And a lot of that was because interest rates were so low that people who traditionally invested in bonds and, and things like that, safe investments, were, were desperate to get something that yielded some profit. So they invested in shale oil. They found to their... Um, uh, unhappiness that uh, a lot of companies went bankrupt producing shale oil. Nonetheless, we produced record numbers of oil in the period from 2009 to 2019. And we actually passed the former uh, oil production peak set in 1970 of roughly 10 million barrels a day. And we got up to about just under 13 million barrels a day in 2019.
<coughs> excuse me. <coughs> and then something happened. Um, we started getting in trouble again with, with our papered over financial system and interest rates started going up again and it became much more problematical to raise investment to continue these shale oil operations at the level that they were happening. At the same time that we were doing that, the so-called sweet spots for uh, finding oil in the Permian shale region and other shale regions started to, uh, we started to run out of sweet spots. <clears throat> There's also a big difference between conventional oil and shale oil. You know, shale oil, conventional oil, you drill a well for the equivalent of about $400,000 in today's money, and it produces for, for decades, thousands of barrels a day. Well, shale oil wells cost between six and twelve million barrels, uh, six six and twelve million dollars to to drill. They produce, you know, about one hundred and fifty barrels a day for the first year, and after that, they decline by sixty percent. And after three years, they're done. So the whole mathematics of shale oil was very janky, and uh, it's uh, they can't raise new investment as easily as they used to, and uh, you know they're. They're now probably on a track to head down pretty swiftly. And then we're going to be very disappointed that that, you know, that uh, it didn't persist and and uh, we're going to be out of luck. So a lot of the long emergency story uh, ran along the lines of uh, our dependence on petroleum to run this thing, including, you know, the fabrication of so-called alt energy hardware, you know, solar panels, windmills, turbines, all that stuff. And even nuclear energy, which, you know, may be the only way that we can keep the lights running after a certain period of time. But it, too, depends heavily on petroleum just to, to keep the uh, nuke plants going and especially to back them up when, you know, when they when they go down and and in the event that there's a grid down situation. So, you know, we're we're once again. Uh, facing another round of uncertainty about the oil supply and uh, particularly uh, disruptions in the distribution system now that we've created all this mischief with Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, the Europeans are now going to be deprived of a lot of the fossil fuels that they depended on. And, you know, it's looking like they're actually going to be going medieval pretty quickly because they don't have anything in back of those prior arrangements that they had for for oil and natural gas and they can't run their industrial economies without them or for that matter you know heat as many homes as they have to so you know we're really heading into a period of great financial economic uncertainty and probably political uh tumultuous political disorder as all of this stuff plays out and uh, it's not going to be the World Economic Forum's vision of, you know, you'll you'll you you'll own nothing, eat bugs, and be happy. You don't think? <laughs> yeah, you know. I'm sorry uh, for the long answer. No, no, it's it's perfectly fine. I was I was chuckling when you brought up the WEF. I'm like, yeah, we're gonna own nothing, eat bugs. Everybody's yeah. gonna be happy. Kumbaya. <laughs> you know when when you bring up 2008. You know, I, I was still in college then, and so I was playing hockey, chasing tail, and wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to anything. Uh, was that an energy problem back in 2008, or was that um, uh, housing market financial stupidity back then? Uh, it was both, uh, plus throw in financial market um, cupidity, greed, uh, corruption, uh you know, uh, uh, crime, but, uh, I'm not going to run on the mouth the way I did a, a while back, but, uh, yeah, the simple answer to your question is yes, it was very much connected to the oil situation. Remember in 2000, in the summer of 2008, I believe, uh, the price of oil went up to nearly $150 a barrel. And, um, the trouble is, you know, there's a basic kind of equation in the real world, which is that, uh, in today's dollars, you know, oil under $75 a barrel crushes oil companies and oil over $75 a barrel crushes economies. And uh, so we're in a real kind of is predicament. That, is, that, 
Is that because oil companies like have become too big? Like I remember. No, it's because the kind of the operations like shale oil that I just described are way, 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 way more expensive than it used to be to drill an oil well in Oklahoma or, you know, or, or Siberia. It just, you know, the cost of producing this and, and that not to mention producing oil on offshore platforms, you know, which are, gazillion dollar pieces of infrastructure um, where they have to drill miles under the ocean and then miles under the rock under the ocean to get to the prize. And, uh, you know, it's very, very costly. It's not like Oklahoma in 1952. So, uh, you know, the whole, you know, the whole formula for the whole business model for doing this has changed. This comes to, um, I'm going to butcher this. Is it E-R-O-I or is it R-O-I, return on E-R-O-I-O-I, it's energy return on, on investment. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, I knew I was going to butcher that, Jim. Um, basically, that in the beginning when it was just sitting there on the surface, you were getting, you know, for every um, unit of energy put in, you were getting 100 times out. Right, for every been... bar- equivalent barrel of oil you put into the enterprise, you got 100 barrels of oil out. Now it's something like, I think, you know, 15 or something. So is that a, a, is that a U.S.-specific uh, problem, or do you see that across the, the world? Well, you know, there are different kinds of rock and different kinds of oil and different kinds of companies and enterprises all over the world. Um, and they all have, you know, they have some similar problems. They all have they have some different problems. You know, the, the operations in the Permian Basin in Texas, where they're doing shale oil, you know, is, is not exactly like the, you know, a, uh, an offshore platform in the North Sea. And that's not very much like drilling in the desert sands of Saudi Arabia. You know, they're all kind of different. They have different, for example, the Saudi Arabian oil, uh, first of all, it's very sour crude, meaning it's high sulfur crude. It's hard to refine. Um, Also, they have to pump immense amounts of seawater into the rock to goose out the oil. And, And, you know, most of what comes back out of the ground in Saudi Arabia, at least from the Gawar, the great, Gawar oil field, the great elephant of all elephant oil fields. You know, most of what they pump out is water with some oil in it. Um, you know, the the North Sea uh, has the kind of problems that, that come with drilling in places that uh, are very inhospitable to work in. You know, you got to work outside on an oil platform, uh, you know, when it's, you know, it's sleeting out in the North Sea and the wind is blowing at 60 miles an hour not too groovy. Um, and I've described the operations in Texas, you know, well, I haven't described, you know, the numbers of truck trips that have to be made with the fracking fluid and the water and the chemicals and the sand that they need to, they use these special particles of, of sand uh, that they inject along with the water to hold open the cracks in the fracked rock to allow the oil to seep into the cracks. So, you know, it's a very specialized, expensive thing. They make, you know, millions of trips with these trucks in and out of the oil pads, you know, great distances carrying all this stuff. So it's crazy expensive. So, no, the answer to your question is, uh, you know, there are some similarities and there are a lot of differences around the world. The one, you know, the one uh, major similarity is that oil is fungible, meaning you know, you can you can get a barrel of oil in one place and pretty much sell it in another. It's not all the same. The the um, shale oil problem is that it's excessively light. It doesn't contain a whole lot of heavy distillates that we need desperately, like diesel fuel. You know, in heating oil, it doesn't contain enough of that, if any. It's it mostly comes out of the ground as something like gasoline, and um, you know, on the other hand, the, the Saudis have this heavy, highly, highly sulfured uh, uh, crude oil that is hard to refine. So they've got a different problem. And uh, there you have it. So in your thought process, then, we're coming closer and closer, whether it's 10 years away, whether it's 20 years away, whether it's five years away, where we will see um, societies kind of shrink in because 
what's allowed us to get to where we are has been cheap energy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty much uh, what I think the, the <clears throat> you know, uh, a part of this picture is that, you know, you don't have to disrupt the whole picture in order for it to fail. All you have to do is pull out some strategic pieces and things fall apart. So we don't have to run out of oil to, for the oil industry internationally to become very disordered and for places, you know, certain places to not be able to get oil anymore or to not have enough or uh, to be shut out of markets. And, you know, one, you, you can see what's happening with Ukraine. You know, we, you know, we basically through, through uh, military violence, we shut Europe out of the uh, Russian national natural gas market. Well, and then one, add in blowing up a pipeline. By blowing up a pipeline. We just, you know, summarily decided we were going to do that. And uh, that was it for, you know, and, and so far, you know, they managed to squeak through last winter. I guess the pipeline went down in September, August, September of 22. They managed to squeak through last winter on stored natural gas reserves that they had but you know further and further ahead it's going to be ever more difficult for them and really difficult for them to run whatever industries they they still want to run and uh, you know they're not going to have the kind of economy that they've had for the last 75 years and god knows what it's going to be so yeah things uh things becoming very unstable a lot of political turbulence and friction attending the scramble for resources that's going to go on. But there are, you know, new things have entered the picture which weren't around when I wrote The Long Emergency, which ought to be very disturbing to people. The whole COVID-19 fiasco, which uh, because we've been deprived of real hard information so sedulously for so long, uh, there, there are an awful lot of people who, are completely in the dark about what's going on. And the main feature of what has gone on is that uh, we introduced this vaccine that is not good for people. It's unhealthy, it's dangerous, it's harmful, and it's creating a lot of injuries and disabilities, and uh, the disabilities will lead to deaths. So we're seeing, you know, large increases in, in, uh, uh, excess deaths and disabilities and in the places where they're actually keeping records. How long can, like, I mean, is it just willful blindness on, on the part of uh, all the, the COVID nonsense or is it, uh, or is it just still the, the, um, the government's ability, the, the media's ability to just construct a narrative and, and nobody dig deeper than that. Because I mean, I'm sure with the long emergency, when you start talking, Oh, we're going to run out of oil or, Maybe not run out of oil, Jim. More, the oil's going to become very costly to get out. Ah, oh, you're just a worry wart. You just, well, uh, yeah. You by know. the way, it, not, it may not actually be costly. It may end up, the price may be going down. And there's, there's an excellent blogger named Gail Tverberg who runs a site called Our Finite World. And her thesis over the last 10 years has been, and it's been proven, that you get to a certain point in an oil emergency or some kind of a crisis where the oil price actually starts going down because so much demand destruction has occurred that uh, they basically made their markets smaller. And we saw that, ha- we've seen that happen in the period between 2009 and, and 2020. You know, and there was a period uh, during the COVID thing when the, the uh, price of uh, crude oil futures actually went below zero for a period of, I don't know, a day or so. And and it stayed very low for a long time. But I mean, uh, in that time, nobody was going anywhere. They were yeah, told not to go true. anywhere. They were they were literally locked everybody in their homes for but look, you know. Two thousand nine, the the price of oil, well, the price of oil went from two from one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel in two thousand eight, and plunged to like thirty dollars a barrel uh, two thousand nine. So, you know, uh, that that was a non COVID occurrence and these are the, that's illustrates what gail has been saying so it, it's not necessarily going to be a high price thing it may be a sheer scarcity thing and it also may be a sheer destruction of uh economic activity thing 
you know, which is something I, I believe you're going to be seeing in Europe, especially. What are you going to see in Europe? Can you explain uh, that? The just destruction of economic activity per se, you know, not much manufacturing uh, or manufacturing folding up, leaving, going bankrupt, stopping. Forget uh, you know, Germany in particular has been a country that depends heavily on, you know, machine tool making and other very advanced uh, uh, manufacturing activities. And they're not going to be able to do that anymore. Um, they may not be able to make cars anymore. They may not be able to do a lot of things they were used to doing. Um, maybe you, uh, I'm forgetting the article now, but last uh, last fall, certainly into the winter, I remember paying close attention to, to Europe and thinking, yeah. you know, like, oh, my goodness, you know, with the pipelines down and sanctions against Russia and on and on it went. I'm like, man, are people going to just be freezing everywhere? And then uh, the brothers, I got three older brothers. We'd been reading uh, an article on the amount of exports coming from different countries to get them uh, natural gas, among other things, uh, to make sure they could heat their homes, run their industries and things like that. Uh, is that something that could be the case for this upcoming winter? Or you're like, no, that isn't the case at all. I think they're going to have problems this coming winter and we're going to have problems here this coming winter. Um, but largely because, uh, people are going to be short of money and, you know, we're, we're entering a new phase of financial disorder and, you know, there, there are two ways of going broke. You can have a lot of money that's worthless or you can have no money. And we're going to be moving, I believe from the phase of having money that's losing value to the phase of just not having money. And, you know, that, that's inflation and deflation. You know, deflation was characteristic of the Great Depression of the 1930s. And we're going to be returning to something like that. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of differences in, in uh, how, it, how it works. Because, for example, during the Great Depression of the 1930s, we still had plenty of uh, first-rate industrial infrastructure in place. It just wasn't running, you know. Uh, and plenty of workers, and, and, uh, but there was no money. So I, I want to get back to something that you started to ask me a while ago before we got off track, which sure. is, you know, how is it that uh, so many people don't know what's happened to them, especially with, with the COVID-19 business, right? And the answer to that is, uh, yeah, the governments have been very successful in mind-fucking their populations, and that's just what happened. You know, uh, you could see it explicitly in the USA where, uh, you know, several federal agencies combined to coerce this new transmission method known as social media, where most people were starting to get all their news from. And um, the federal government, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the FBI, the CIA, the you know, the CDC, all of these agencies combined to lean and the White House itself combined to lean on these social media companies explicitly to uh, restrict information from being transmitted, including truthful information. They invented this new concept called misinformation, which is a bullshit concept. It's just a way of saying, you know, stuff that we don't want you to think about or understand or hear uh, and whether it's true or not. And, uh, you know, there's only information and uh, the information is either truthful or comports with reality or it's not truthful and it doesn't comport with reality. But the best way to determine that is to let all the ideas into the arena and let people debate them and talk about them, discuss them. But if you don't allow that to happen, then you're going to end up with uh, people who are uh, pretty intellectually disabled. And that's what's happened to us. It's especially tragic in you know in the west and in europe canada and, and america uh because the people who are worst afflicted by this are the thinking classes the managerial classes the college educated people who got the most mind fucked and uh you know now that they're in this unfortunate kind of semi-psychotic state they're they're liable to not ever come out of it they're going to be you know, defending their positions until uh, the the bitter end. And the bitter end may be that these vaccines are going to kill an awful lot of people, including the, the dumbbells who took it. 
you know, including the dumbbells in academia and corporate America and, you know, all these other places that educated people who read the New York Times live in and work in. And I just wonder, you know, LeBron James' son, uh, Bronny, just had a, a heart attack. He's 18 years old. And I'm, I'm, and and the one before that that I really remember that stuck out was Justin Bieber, Bieber having Bell's palsy, having his, you know, and I'm like, so at what point do people see this and, and realize, like, this isn't normal? Like, it just isn't. You would have thought that it would have happened by now. By now. It, you know, it's just extraordinary that it hasn't happened. But, you know, it's still... I mean, I marvel at this, and I, I meet old friends every day. My old, you know, my old uh, ex-hippie cohorts that I've known for 40 years <laughs> uh, who, you know, back in the 1960s, they were rallying for free speech and rallying against the war, and now they're rallying for censorship and supporting this stupid uh, uh, imperialistic project in Ukraine. And uh, I... I struggle to fathom what they've gone through, but I, having had these conversations lately with them, you know, it's summertime. I've been getting out. I've been meeting them at, you know, art gallery openings and other, you know, social events. They don't know anything. All they do is or the only thing they listen to is national public radio. They don't have any other sources of information and they are just lied to uh, incessantly and they have no idea. And, you know, they believe the authorities, they, they believe the people of their own class. And it's, I think to understand this fully, you have to consider that uh, a lot of this is really about maintaining one's status. Uh, you know, we're very, uh, we're very chimpanzee-like organisms, human beings. And uh, we're very status-driven and hierarchy-driven. And it's very important for you to subscribe to you know, the narrative or, you know, the reigning beliefs of whatever tribe you're, uh, you want to be associated with. And if that's the tribe of the, the well-educated people who are smart, who know everything, you know, then you want to, you're going to want to adopt their beliefs and express them. And so, you know, that's the reason that so many people are mindlessly repeating things like, uh, you know, the vaccines are safe and effective when they, they should know better. But, uh, you know, the, the upshot is that the major organs for disseminating, disseminating news, uh, the traditional ones that people cannot really let go of their trust in, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Network News, NBC, ABC, et cetera, et cetera, and National Public Radio and whatever you got in Canada, you know, CBC, CBC, et cetera. You know, people cannot surrender their allegiance to these uh, organs, despite the fact that these organs are lying to them all the time, spinning these stories in ridiculous directions and, uh, you know, bringing on conditions that are going to lead to a lot of death and suffering. It's interesting when you say they know nothing. It's it's I find that almost laughable because it's in a in a time when you can literally go out and find as much information as you want. Like I mean, you can literally yeah. just hop on a computer and go listen to, now with podcasts and and different shows like hours upon hours of amazing um, uh, discussions with uh, different doctors, lawyers, professors, all the the different and you know. Uh, on and on and on it goes. It's it's rather funny, but in saying that, I always forget how how good of a job, and I don't know what to call it, the other side maybe does at painting a picture of like, nah, you don't want to listen to those guys. They're all bad. They're all like corrupt. They're all they, and they literally paint you into a corner. And if you uh, don't give it any second thought, because I I I said this to Martin Armstrong when I had him on, you know, like. I remember hearing him for the first time, and I Googled him because I know who the hell is this guy. And then I Wikipedia it, and it's like convicted felon. I'm like, why the heck am I listening to a convicted felon, right? And then you do some more digging, and you find, and I mean, geez, now in Canada with you know, I just had on Pat King not that long ago. There's another one in Tamara Leach, and these are all these people who are just regular everyday folk who drove to Ottawa to get rid of the mandates, and mm -hmm. now they're all locked away in prison and everything else. And they're probably their Wikipedia pages also have convicted felon among other things anyways all i'm saying is I, I i maybe sometimes glaze over the fact 
at how much of an effect that has on the everyday regular people if you haven't been, for lack of a better term, red-pilled to what the heck's going on. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, both of our countries, our populations in North America are suffering terribly. And um, it's been just a very successful um, mind control operation that's worked by you know, look, when when Hitler and Goebbels were doing their thing in the 1930s, you know, all they really had was newspapers and radio to work with. But, uh, you know, they they did a superb job and uh, they mind fucked the whole German population and the whole thing ended in catastrophe for the Germans. And but we have many more ways of doing it. And um, um like I said, you know, the, the educated classes in our countries uh, have these allegiances to certain companies, organizations, news organizations that they can't give up. And, and uh, it's one of the great mysteries, uh, really, of our time is exactly how is it that there are so few honorable people in journalism, apparently. People with absolutely no honor, utter moral degenerates who have made a career of conveying falsehoods. And um, uh, I'm reading a book now, which I hope will unlock part of the, the secret to that. It's called Truthophobia by a British uh, uh, journalist named Graham Magis, I think is his name. Uh, Magin. And... Um, one of my one of my pet theories is that there must because the newspaper business, especially like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Toronto Star, whatever, you know, because it's become such a bad business, it makes it so hard for them to make money without the whole advertising structure that they used to have. Um, how do they actually finance their operations and pay all their people and make a profit or do any of that? And my guess is that they're getting huge amounts of backdoor money from the government and from the the so-called intelligence community. And uh, they're basically, you know, they basically bought them off. Uh, That's a guess, but uh, it's hard to imagine how else they're carrying this off. You know, I was a newspaper man in the 1970s. And newspaper people generally, you know, who who were never very well paid. Now, I was a young person then, so it was okay with me. I was having an adventure, you know. But uh, the newspaper business has generally not paid very well. Um, But the people who were in it were very independent-minded. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, they didn't like to be pushed around. And uh, they were eager to find the truth about things. But now we have a generation of editors and reporters who have no regard for the truth at all and seem to actually have a libido for uh, uh, mendacity. You know, when you go back to Hitler and Germany and, and you know, the fact they had newspapers and radios and they did a, fan, a, a superb job in uh, mind-fucking the population, uh, you know, I, I've, been, I've been, you know, following along with Russia-Ukraine and wondering, you know, what would it take to galvanize a population and want to go over there and, like, fight Russia. And one of the things I've come back to over and over again is I'm like, I don't know if they could do it. Like, honestly, with the amount of uh, people talking now through channels like this and people hearing it, I, everything they've tried doing to this point hasn't worked. It's just, I mean... Well, yeah, that's I'm, a key to the whole the whole situation for the moment is that we haven't sent any of our people over. We're just uh, arranging for a lot of Ukrainians to lose their lives. And we don't. it shows that we don't care about the Ukrainians who are losing their lives. So it's for us, it's just another op. You know, it's just... A, 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 I, I wanted to also get back to something you said five minutes ago about, you know, we have all these alternative uh, news media and stuff. Uh, one of the strange... Uh, byproducts of the last 30 years, let's say, is that we're we're discovering that the blowback from technology is tremendous. It's just full of unanticipated uh, problems and and things that we just had no idea were going to happen. 
And uh, this is illustrated very well by the fact that we have thousands upon thousands of websites that offer news and opinion. And we have the most confused population ever in the history of the USA and probably Canada, too. So, you know, the, the unintended consequences of having all of these voices out there, some of them big voices and some of them little voices, is this just grand cacophony that makes it ever more difficult for people to comp to to apprehend what reality is made of. Well, you can see the the narrative going being pulled apart as the same time as they're trying to construct it. Well, there's also attention. there's also this idea that's prevailed in my generation, especially, and it's helped along with with certain uh, Marxist ideas that have been kind of insinuated themselves into our culture, that there is no such thing as reality, that it's all constructed, you know, uh, and subjective, and it's whatever you say it is. And that idea has gotten a huge amount of traction, so that when people fail to understand what's been done to them, you know, they can invent any cockamamie story they want to uh, account for it. I, I think all this is going to get much more difficult when we get to the point when when uh, the vaccine injuries and deaths become more obvious. And, and you know, there's not going to be any hiding that anymore. There's just going to be too many people who have seen friends and relatives drop dead, die, wither away, lose their, you know, have their organs fail in one way or another, come up with dreadful cancers. You know, we'll see. Man, I hope uh, it'll be... Well, I mean, it's it's been going on. I mean, it's it's not yeah. even you know. But it's, it's, it's a wild on. period of history. Oh. It really is. It's 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 an <laughs> epic, you know. This mindfuck uh, deal is just one of the epic uh, uh, social hysterias of the last two thousand years. You know, I I don't know if we've ever seen anything like this, and certainly not at this scale. I mean, even when the when the the Black Death swept Europe people knew what the fuck was going on pretty much. I mean, they knew that people were dying and they knew that it was probably not a good idea to hang out with them, you know, dead people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but th this is something else. Uh, you've never seen so many, so many people who ought to know better, uh, just, you know, lose it. And, and, uh, you know, when you see somebody like Rachel Walensky, uh, the, former head of the CDC, who's just only recently replaced by some other little cheerleader. Um, you know, when you see her go, go to go into Congress and lie through her teeth about, you know, they just can't come up with the data with the data. They, you know, we just don't know how many hospitalizations there actually were, blah, blah, blah. You know, these billion dollar agencies. So it's either incompetence or or it's uh, deliberate. No, it's got to be deliberate. Yeah. I think so. I, I, there's no way you can be a billion dollar organization, like you say, and not come up with the data. That do, I mean, heads would roll in any private, like, I mean, they just would roll. Well, like, one, one of the things that's going on now is that there is data that's coming out of the UK uh, and it's being analyzed, you know, among other people, uh, the, the, the suddenly well-known Edward Dowd, uh, the former stock analyst. Yeah, um, he's been a guest on the show. Okay, well, you know what he's about, and yeah, you know, he talked about it. He he's he's basing a lot of his current uh, statistical analysis on the the numbers that are coming out of England because because they're at least coming out with numbers, and you know there's something in their system of reporting that's cracked a little bit more than the United States. Probably the the trouble with the the situation in the United States is that there are so many people now who are criminally culpable for doing what they did that they can't they can't turn around and start telling the truth now you know they, they're gonna have to just lie to the bitter end and you know maybe they'll get away with it if you know if we if we encounter a really comprehensive collapse that has everybody preoccupied with just you know finding enough to eat and staying alive and making enough money to support their family if 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 our money still exists um, you know, they're hoping that by then nobody will care about how this thing happened. But, you know, history will uh, figure it out. 
When you, uh, once again, I don't know if I'll get this exactly right. You said there's three different ways, uh, I believe it's a long emergency, can can show itself. Maybe I'm a little bit off in this. Can do what to itself? uh, Show itself. I feel like you'd mentioned three different things. Mm -hmm. Climate change, which you said it would probably show in food shortages. Uh, Peak oil, and that was the global energy predicament. And then you said the banking fiasco. Am I right on those three? Well, I'm not really... I'm not really an advocate of the peak oil, uh, excuse me, of the uh, climate change story anymore. I've come to different conclusions really? about it. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Would, I mean, would I, think ta- some, I think things are going on, but they're, 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 they're not what they seem to be. And they're being, uh, they're, they're being used to, uh, for further mindfuckery. Uh, I think what what's t- going on is that the, the, the climate changes continuously the weather certainly changes, but the climate changes continually from one era to another, um, sometimes sharply, sometimes uh, not so much. But, you know, we've had we've had several warming periods in just the last 2000 years of so-called recorded history. You know, we had the, the, uh, the Hellenic warming. We had the high Roman warming. We had the medieval warming. You know, we had the cooling that that destroyed the Hellenic uh, Greek Empire, the cooling that attended, maybe didn't cause, but attended the Roman collapse. We had the uh, the cooling of the Dark Ages. We had the Little Ice Age. Um, Jim, was I was I wrong in that one point in time you thought climate change then was a thing? Yeah, in my book, in my 2005 book, The Long Emergency, I wrote about climate change. But basically, it was, I wrote a chapter about the Greenland ice cores and what they were showing. And really what they just show is, you know, cycles of, of uh, you know, ice ages and, in, you know, in, inter-ice age warmings. And, um, you know, we're dealing with such a short period of history, really, in which it doesn't, it's not the same as geologic history. In human history, we've had all these warming events. And um, uh, it really is a matter of how humans adapt to the changes that are presented. And, and we do adapt, and we will, we will adapt. The, 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 um, the, the current warming, if it is actually happening, and I'm not even sure that, it, that that's for real, um, you know, it, it may create a lot of uh, food problems that are going to end up killing a lot of people. Uh, and well, this, so, is, this is... You know, this is People where I wanted to go with the the, the food shortages, mm-hmm. uh, or even the the global energy issue. How much of that could you put into Tom Foolery by the government? Like I, I just think of the government; they want to transition our oil fields into the green, you know, uh, just transition. Yeah, a lot of it. They 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 want they want to do that. They want to eliminate, you know. I forget what it is. Is it thirty percent reduction, folks, in fertilizer? In, they in want to do nitrogenous fertilizers. They want to do yeah. a, a lot of these things, which I mean is going to create food shortages, yeah. which is going to. They want to shut energy. down farms in Europe. Yeah, know, like in I the mean, Netherlands. So how much of it is we are actually going to experience this, and how much of this is the government is going to force us to experience it? Well, I don't know. Look, like I said, there are always. Uh, going to be changes and transformations in in the weather and climate and uh you know we may go through a warming we may go through a cooling whatever it is Uh, i i want to raise something that might interest you though it was pointed out the other day i think it was on dave Collins' twitter feed that uh you know there there was a some kind of a tremendous underwater volcano that went off uh in the south pacific in the last few years maybe 2020 2021 something like that and um it was an underwater volcano um and and there are many of them in the world you know they they just don't show up that easily because they don't blow off uh as, as dramatically as the ones uh on land but what this volcano did was that it it uh threw a whole lot of water vapor into the upper atmosphere and that water vapor has been circulating for a couple of years up there and creating kind of a, you know a heat blanket around the uh, globe, and giving people the impression that that you know we're in some new epical uh, climate change uh, 
when it may not be the case, it may be simply the case that a volcano underwater spewed a lot of water vapor into the atmosphere and you get two years of, you know, weird weather, just like in the early 1800s, uh, you know, the Tambora or whenever it was, uh, sometime in the last 300 years, the Tambora volcano erupted in the South Pacific and threw all this debris in the air. And you got this condition that the uh, that Western Civ called the year without summer. I think it was 1816 and all the crops failed and it was tremendous, uh, you know, uh, uh, tremendous upset and and even a number of evangelical religions kind of e erupted out of that um, uh, discontinuity so you know maybe you know there are there are also all kinds of cycles within cycles you know there are maunder minimums so-called uh, there are you know there are 80 year cycles there are sunspot cycles there are all kinds of things that affect the way the 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 weather and the climate work but living on Earth, you know, this is a fragile existence for human beings. You know, we've, we've gotten to the point where we think, okay, you plant, you know, X bazillion bushels of wheat, and then you go into the supermarket and there's, you know, there's endless supplies of uh, Lucky Charms and Fruit Loops. And that's what life is about. But that's not what life is about. You know, I, I myself have a little homestead here in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley. And, um, uh, you know, I, I planted uh, 30 fruit trees when I got here 12 years ago. And, you know, I've never had a really good season of fruit of all kinds, plums, peaches, apples, uh, uh, pears, etc. I've had some spotty fruit production, but I've discovered it's really hard to grow tree fruit, you know. Uh, you got to really be on top of like the whole pruning operation, the spraying. I mean, one of the reasons we get fruit so reliably is that we spray it mercilessly. And I don't spray my trees. So, you know, I get a lot of insect damage. And, uh, you know, this year I had a cold week or maybe 10 days when uh, the fruit trees were blooming and the bees didn't come around and they didn't pollinate. So I have very, very little fruit. Uh the week before Memorial Day in late May here in the USA, we got a king hell hailstorm. It crushed most of the uh, things I'd planted with large leaves like uh, eggplants, tomatoes, peppers, you know, anything that had a, a big enough leaf, kale. It, it, it destroyed these young plants and I had to go out in late May and replant as much as I could of everything. So, you know, it's hard to grow food. It's just not easy. So, you know, you hear people pissing and moaning about the industrial food production system getting into trouble. Well, you know, that was a great luxury that we had, you know, for certain reasons at a certain time and place in history. And those reasons may be going away. When you look into the future and, uh, see some of the, well, I mean, just take what's, you know, from COVID and everything else that's gone on. Um, you see the amount of money that the government is printing, spending, printing again, so forth and so on. Uh, what do you see in the future? I see a, uh, I, I see a, a Western sieve at least that's going to be really hard up for money. You know, what, the problem with money is that uh, it has to, represent real wealth and if it only pretends to represent real wealth and the pretense is discovered then all of a sudden a lot of the things that pretend to represent it just go up in a vapor and that's kind of where we're at with the financial system is that we've got all these instruments out there you know bonds and and uh, stocks and currencies and derivatives and things that pretend to represent real capital that is real accumulated wealth when in fact they don't really they just you know we we've just assigned a certain role for them to play in a kind of a fictional financial economy so you know i just bottom line we're going to be a whole lot poorer we may not be able to depend on the currencies that now exist and we don't know what the currencies of the future are going to be exactly so Tough call, except, uh, you know, just prepare to have less money. And well, prepare then, to have other things like skill. 
<laughs> skill. Yes, I, I, I would. Uh, when you, when you look at it, then are you a gold guy? Do you believe in Bitcoin? Do you care for either? Yeah, I believe in precious metals and gold and silver. Um, I think it's plausible to me. I wrote a series of novels, actually, uh, called the World Made by Hand series. That there are four novels that set in a small town like the one I live in, in a post-economic collapse scenario. And so the, all the characters continue through all four books. Some of them come into the foreground, and then they recede into the background, and they tell different stories. But in that working out of, of such a scenario, what has happened is that silver has returned, silver coins returned to circulation as the main means of exchange. And it wouldn't surprise me if that happened in North America at a certain point, at least for a while. You know, uh, we are going to go into some kind of a timeout from modernity or what we think of as this era of... Uh, these conditions of comfort and convenience that we're so used to. Uh, we're going to take a time out from it, and it may be a long time out. And it's hard to tell exactly what the features of it are going to be. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but, you know, prepare for it because it's coming. Well, with, uh, well, I I guess we'll do the crude minor, uh, crude master final question. Um <laughs> It's it's what's next for for Jim, and if there is a way, is there anything that uh, the audience can do to help? Uh, do you got books coming out? Or oh, would you direct them to uh, your well? Well, I'll mainly, leave it to you. mainly, you know, come to my my political blog, Clusterfuck Nation, comes out every Monday and every Friday, and not the days in between, twice a week, at uh, kunstler.com, just my name.com. Um, I am doing some books. I, I just had a book of my paintings come out because I'm a pretty serious painter and have been since since I was trained as a youth in the visual arts. And um, I, I'm finishing a book now called Young Man Blues about the tribulations of adolescence. And that may be out in a year or so uh, or less, probably less. Because these days, uh, it takes less time to put out. It used to take a year and a half for a book to come out from a major publisher. Now they can do it a lot quicker, uh, more quickly. So, you know, there's that. And there's all my backlist books that are on my website, kunstler.com. And I'm just keeping on. You know, I'm, I'm closer to the end than the beginning. And <laughs> I'm even closer to the end than the middle <laughs> at the age of 75. And... Uh, you know, uh, I'm fortunate that I'm keeping on and uh, I aim to keep keeping on for a while. And then eventually I'll check out and uh, I'll go somewhere else or nowhere at all. When uh, with Clusterfuck Nation, what's been grabbing your attention uh, for the block? What's what's been um, well, mean, the, the so sheer corruption of the U.S. government under Joe <laughs> Biden is just it is uh, it is more than a greek tragedy tragic comedy it it's something that takes place on, on a different astral plane even than greek tragedy it's so ex exorbitantly crazy and the lies that have been put over and the trips that have been laid on the american people are so astonishing that uh, it's just an amazing thing to have lived through it uh, I, you know i started really blogging intensely about these matters really about seven years ago or so when I maybe six or seven years ago when I went twice a week and uh, you know this whole epic from the rise of Donald Trump to uh, what is now looking like the fall of Joe Biden has really been quite an astonishing period of history and uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that I lived through it. I'm glad you've brought up Joe Biden and that I, I'm I'm sitting here. I'm married to a, a Minnesota girl, so I'm I'm in uh, Minnesota right now, and I'm Minnesota blue state. So I've been bumping into lots of Democrats, anyways. Yeah. And I can't help myself. I've been you know kind of poking and prodding and just you know I I just get to be a fly on the wall, and I I've brought up Biden a couple times. Just see, hear what thoughts are. What are your thoughts? And. I'm not going to say it's been a resounding uh, similar answer, but uh, the same answer, sorry. But what I've heard is, oh, he's not as bad as Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump or Joe Biden is in the next election, I will vote 
Joe Biden. It's very similar to what I, what I was describing with my old hippie friends. You know, I ask them, how's Joe Biden doing? And they say, oh, he's doing great. Yeah, he's getting a lot of his program passed. It just astonishes me. That it, it amazes me that they think this guy has any credibility at all. So, you know, look, at I, I, I'm a believer in Matt, Matthias Desmet's yes. uh, mass, mass formation idea. Yeah. It seems to me that what we're seeing is really a kind of uh, group psychosis that, you know, so, you know, when you're having these conversations with these people, they're kind of zombie conversations. You know, they're happening with people whose minds have been emptied out in some weird way that they've really lost their critical faculties. I I find it really amusing and also extremely disturbing. I'm sorry (laughs) to see what's happened to my old friends. You know, they've just... They become as mindless as sow bugs. Amusing and disturbing. Yeah, that's that's a way to put it. Yeah. Uh, appreciate you giving me some time today, Jim, and uh, um, all the best. Uh, and hopefully, a few people stumble into your website and everything else. Uh, Clusterfuck Nation, the blog. There's some good thoughts in there. I can save so uh, from uh, reading it. And a shout out to. Uh, Dale Wilker, he's an architect out of uh, BC. He came on and he told me all about you. I'm glad he did. Either thanks, way, thanks, thank, thanks for thanks for uh, hopping on with me. You're quite welcome, Sean or Shaun. Can I call you that? <laughs> uh, I don't That's know. an in joke. <laughs> thanks again. Okay, bye bye, Sean. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Today's episode has been brought to you by CalRock Industries. With new used and refurbished oil and gas equipment in stock, CalRock is your best bet when it comes to finding equipment that fits your needs, is within your budget, and is ready as soon as you need it. They can even custom manufacture tanks and other equipment for your specific application. They're located here in Lloydminster, but I'm sure they can serve you wherever you are at. All you got to do is go to calrock.ca for more information. I also want to remind people that Patreon, I uh, just started posting back on it. Uh, we're going to give her a go here for the next six months. So if you want to uh, go down in the show notes, you can click on that. Feel free to support. Don't support. It's behind a paywall. So uh, the money is coming back to the podcast. And we got a little behind the scenes uh, action happening there. So love to see and hear your guys' comments on that. Either way, we'll catch up to you on the next episode.